0: Thank you. Thank you. Good to have you. thank you, thank you, Pastor. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you for the uh, accommodations. My wife and I were on the road. Uh, yesterday, uh, yesterday uh, we got out at six in the morning in Chesterton. We woke up around four thirty, and it was time to go to bed. When we got to when we got to the company, it was very nice, and we appreciate it very much. Uh, i take the Bibles, please, this morning. Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, verse 27 to 29 is where we'll be this morning. Um, I wanted to wanted to uh, continue with the testimonial, and this sermon is partly a testimony. It's where God uh, directed me, as I, I mentioned earlier, uh, my wife and I, we swap houses with missionaries. And you know, the house is a big thing, it's easy. Sure, Pastor. If you need the house, you, you, you can. your church needs the house, you know that's. That God gave us that house, and we're gonna and we're gonna uh, use it as a platform for His service. But then, when you think about a liability, what if one of the kids falls down the stairs? What if somebody breaks into the place while we're gone? It's gonna be empty for three weeks between us and when the missionaries arrive. It's gonna be. Um, and uh, what about the car? And who's gonna look after it? What if there's an accident? Um, any of a number of things and begins to worry, you know, Lord, what have I done? And uh, just reminding yourself, well, God gave you the house. It it doesn't mean it'll be all right. Uh, Nowhere in the Bible does does God ever say it'll be all right. God says he'll lead, he'll guide, he'll direct, he'll provide. But when my wife and I started in this ministry of itinerant service, we swapped houses uh, to the ministry. Now remember, this was supposed to be just a one-shot deal and I'd go back to work. That didn't happen. And, uh, of course, there's a bunch of attendant worries and fears that, that come along with that. And as I got on the airliner and I realized this is for real, uh, I had traveled internationally. My wife had not. In the service, of course, the Army us all over the world, I'd never been to Mongolia. I'd never been to Korea before. Uh, even to pass through the airport. Uh, what happens if I get stuck in any of these places? And uh, God gave me... Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 27, to uh, uh, to to guide as an answer to my to my concerns and fears. Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 and 29. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have, therefore? You lock the door to your house. You turn the keys over to your mother-in-law. We'll be back next year. Uh, Your forsaking everything, and I'll break that out and define it according to the Bible in just a few minutes. And Jesus said unto them, <clears throat> Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me, in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now let me stop right here for a moment. Uh, Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples sitting on twelve thrones. One of them's a traitor, Judas Iscariot, that's another sermon. But what this does tell us is that Jesus is dealing <clears throat> separately with his people than he is with the Gentiles. There is a popular heresy making the rounds right now called replacement theology. And it's the idea that since the Jews rejected Jesus, therefore the promises and dealings that Jesus, that God gave to Israel now apply to the church. That's not true. It has its roots in uh, Augustinian heresy. Uh, it has its roots... <clears throat> in uh, Reformed theology, and uh, it partly is tied up with the Catholic Church. It tends to diminish the rapture, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and his second workings with and his separate workings with Israel. God's not done with Israel. Over the last months, we've learned of separate peace treaties between Israel and uh, and uh, uh, Arab nations, which formerly had hated them. Our former President Trump sent some of this in motion. The Israelis—they're working with the French now to bring these about. That's a promise of what will be fulfilled during the tribulation, the first three years of the tribulation. The coming of the Lord is very close. God wants us to keep track of these things. He wants us to know that His return is imminent, that His word is true. But it is not true that God is changing His, that God is taking His promises and dealings with Israel and applying them to the church, much less to the local church. That's not how God is dealing. Uh, Working on now through verse 19, verse 29 is where we're going to be. And everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. God made a hundredfold promise to me. I don't need a hundred houses in Chesterton, Indiana. God made a hundredfold promise to everyone in this room that if we will forsake to serve Him, He will give us a blessing of a type that we can't quantify. Of a type that we can't define, of a surplus that redounds to a testimony, I'll explain that in a minute or two. And a promise of an inheritance to follow that we never earned, that He will give to us, to be a blessing to those around us, to be a testimony of our relationship to God, and to be and, and to be used of the Lord in fulfilling his plan for our life. God promises us a hundredfold. I'd like to take a few minutes this morning. And preach on that as God gave it to me when I began to step out of service and sacrifice and forsaking to serve him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for this time, this opportunity to serve you. We thank you, Lord, for this blessing of the church here in America. And pray, Lord, that you would watch over us now. We've we've seen uh, an attempt by a government to shut down churches, an attempt by the devil to shut down the churches. he has been successful in far too many cases. We just pray now, Lord, that You would guide and direct us; that Your word would not return unto You Lord, that You would, uh, that Your Holy Spirit would go out before me; that He would guide believers in all truth, as You promised, and he would convict of sin and righteousness and judgment, as You promised He would do. And we ask these things in Christ's name, Amen. God wants you to have the hundredfold, or He wouldn't have promised it to you. This is an area in the Scripture where Jesus does not rebuke the Apostle Peter, and I think that's significant to point out. Jesus rebuked Peter throughout his earthly ministry, but not here. In Mark, I won't ask you to turn there, but in Mark chapter 9, verses 5 to 7, we have an account of the transfiguration, where Jesus said, some of you will not taste the death until you see the Son of Man come in his glory. And then Jesus was transfigured into his heavenly body, and he was ministered to uh, by, uh, by Moses and, uh, and Elijah. There with him, the Law and the Prophets conferring with him on his sacrifice that he was to make shortly. And Peter looked at this, and he thought that they should commemorate the event. He said, let us build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses. These these tabernacles were not the Feast of Tabernacles-style brush booths, by the way. Peter was thinking in terms of a plinth-minent cut stone. This hap- in this place, this happened. Like we see all around Pennsylvania and even in parts of Indiana where I'm from uh, where uh, there's a bronze plaque um, uh, explaining that you know somebody famous was born here or whatever. And the voice came from heaven and it he said, this is my beloved son, here ye he am. This isn't about you. It's not about celebrating and worshiping the creature more than the creator. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 31, Peter walked on the water. He was fine until he took his attention off of Jesus. The Bible tells us when he saw the wind and the waves boisterous, he began to pay more attention to the circumstances than to the God that was leading him to, conduct, to to accomplish the impossible. Lord, if it be thou, bid me come to thee on the water. He began to sink. Christian, when we begin to pay more attention to our circumstances than we do to Jesus, we're in it up to our neck, just like Peter was. The Bible says that Jesus reached down and grabbed Peter and took him up by the arm and he rebuked him, saying, wherefore didst thou doubt? Matthew 26, 75, was a famous verse of scripture, the night of the crucifixion. Peter told Jesus, I'll never deny you. I'm going to stand up, stand up for Jesus in my own strength. And that didn't work. Before the cock crowed, I will will deny him three times, Jesus told Peter, and that's what happened. And in each case, Peter imagined he knew God's will on his own. But this is different. Here, Jesus is appealing, or Peter is appealing to Jesus uh, on the pretense, on the premise of obedience. We have forsaken all and followed thee. Forsaking is first an act of obedience. But he said, We have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Forsaking uh, is, uh, well, first let's look at the the hundredfold. What is the hundredfold? 2 Samuel chapter 24. In verse 3. The Bible mentions the hundredfold in just a handful of places, and usually the less times, the more import, the more weight it carries. Second Samuel chapter 24, uh, verses 1 to 3, the Bible talks about David's uh, ungodly census. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. For the king said unto Joab, the captain of the host, Joab's nobody's favorite, by the way. Uh, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God. Joab wasn't even saved. It was was David's God, the Lord thy God. And uh, 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 add unto the people, How many soever they be, a hundredfold, and that the eyes of my Lord the King may see it. But why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? One, he wasn't saved; he nobody's favorite. He had Abner killed, and David told Solomon, "Don't let this warrior head go to the grave in peace." About Joab, but even Joab, knew the king's request, was unusual, and he said, "Why do you delight in doing this?" Joab did not know how many people were in Israel to begin with. He wished David would have a hundredfold increase that he knew God could provide, and he didn't know how big that was going to be. Bible tells us in Malachi chapter 3 verse 10, said to bring all the tithes and offerings into the storehouse, and prove me now herewith, if I not toward thee, out, open the windows of heaven, and pour out a blessing so great that there will not be room to receive it. We hold out our hands to God. God gives us more than our hands can hold. What becomes of that extra blessing? Is it wasted? No. It becomes a testimony. When I first bought the house, I held a mortgage. And I worked at a place we affectionately called the cookie factory. Heroes worked at the cookie factory, part-side food solutions, contract baker, to Mondelez, Oreos, Nutter Butters, fiber, one brownie, only the essentials. Heroes work here. They stayed open during the pandemic. Um, <laughs> Uh, five one brownies, where was I? Chips Ahoy, um graham cracker crumbs, and, uh, <clears throat> and wheat chips. All of it rolled out the assembly line there. And uh, we all knew what each other made, roughly. We didn't talk directly about our salaries, but we knew what each other made. When I bought a house, how can you afford four bedrooms and two and a half baths and two and a half car garage on what you make? God gave it to me. I had a chance to testify to those men in response to their question about divorce and remarriage, which, coincidentally, or God-led, I had just completed in response to a pastor's inquiry where I wanted to present a ministry. And I had to study that issue out. These were men raised in Gary, Indiana, at a time when, in the 80s, if some of you can remember back that far, when America had the highest murder rate of any industrialized nation, Gary, Indiana, had the highest murder rate of any city in America. And these guys were up there. This was not a group of men you go up to, thou shalt not commit adultery. They would brag about their wicked lifestyle. But they asked me the question about the Lord. What does the Bible really say about all this? And I had a chance to witness and testify to them. That's an extra blessing? No, it's a testimony. God used that. And if you'll be ready to, to give an answer unto every man for the hope that is within you, as the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3.15, then you will also be used of God in the same way. And that blessing that goes out, you won't see the end of it. Three years after I quit that job, I was at prayer meeting at our church in Fairhaven. And the men's prayer group that I was with, the leader of that group, I had just come back from presenting our work, and he said, to "Byron, do you remember this person that you knew at the cookie factory?" I said, "Yes." Well, she took a tract that you gave her, and she got saved. I hadn't seen or spoken or prayed for that girl. I have to say, or those people at, at, at where we work in three years. <clears throat> I just faithfully, when we were having a special event at the church, I would hand these people tracts. Be faithful to hand out tracts to uh, to those around you. Since the pandemic, my wife and I have only had one tract directly returned to us. A couple of said we can't take those because of the pandemic. We can't take anything back over the sales counter. But that's the first time. I've forgotten how many people have been excited, how many waitresses, how many uh, counter attendants, how many gas station attendants, how many toll booth takers have been so grateful to receive a tractor, even if they've turned it back, said, oh, I'm safe, but thank you. And how many have said "Nobody, at, nobody else at the missions conference has given any track to the hotel staff. Be faithful. is not a lot of competition. But there's a blessing it's immeasurable, and that's what the 104 is in part. But how then do we forsake? What is forsaking? Forsaking is to leave alone. It is to remit. When you pay a tithe to the church, you are remitting. It's a debt you owe God. When I get a utility bill that I don't normally pay online, although I do more, than I used to. There was a little portion on the top of that on that uh, bill stub. It said, "Please attach this report, this this uh, portion with your contribution." No. Please attach this portion with your tip. No. It said with your remittance. And so we owe to God to forsake. It is not to throw something away or quit. When I quit my job at the cookie factory. It was with a little bit of tugging at my heart because I also recently said to the pastor that, you know, between you and the missionary and I, I'm the only one putting my job to undertake this ministry. And our kind, sympathetic, uh, soft-hearted pastor laughed out loud. And, um, and I was not throwing up my hands and walking out the door into I don't know what, but rather I was putting that job aside to serve the Lord. It is done for the sake of obedience. We lay something aside. Peter told Jesus, we have forsaken all and followed thee. A Christian forsakes with direction and purpose, and this is driven by obedience. That's how a Christian forsakes. Now, we can forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but notice the commandment of Hebrews 10.25 is to forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. There are some people unable to attend service this morning. I'm preaching to them on this cell phone. That's how our voice in this service is reaching, or how God's word is getting to them. That's not forsaking. When I served in Mongolia, I served with a man named Ibn Bayer. He was the, Tukso was the, is the pastor of the church. Ibn Bayer is the leading member and he works with Tukso for, uh, as, a, as a trustee or, um, and servant of the church there. And he and I would go out door knocking. He was so excited when I came there for, for another three months in Mongolia. We go, so winning. Yes, yes we do. So we went out soul winning, and he would talk to me in his broken English. This Sunday, I not go to church. Sunday evening, I go to church. This Thursday, I not go to church. Sunday morning, Sunday evening, I go to church. You see, Union Buyer worked at the power plant. And in third world countries, and more and more here in the United States, the job owns you. When we read in uh, Acts chapter 2 that they broke bread, the disciples broke bread every day, they weren't having dinner fellowship. They were having communion. And they had church every day. And one of the issues that we face in Zambia, too, is about opening up the church to reach a wider group of people. That's why we're going over there to up the Bible Institute. We want to get the church out to more people. We don't want to force people to forsake the assembly of ourselves together. When the pandemic hit, there's a lot of pastors appointed themselves first among equal. Here it is in Romans 13, verses 1 to 6. If the government says shut down, you have to shut down. And that's not what the Bible says. But that's what we were hearing. And one of the pastors who supports us in Maine, I was relating this to the pastor just this morning, he kept open, he kept meeting to the limits of any restrictions. And the pastor, God rewarded him with a new building to replace the one that he was in with a larger ministry, more people to reach in an area that God called him to get to that he hadn't been able to geographically reach up to that point. God rewards faithfulness. And my wife and I have seen this. Again and again. Both pastors with prophets chambers who told us if you're coming by from Chesterton to Pennsylvania, stop in our prophets chamber overnight, told us no. Why couldn't they do it? Because they had to build out into the footprint of that prophets chamber to expand their church to meet. God is waiting to bless faithful church members or faithful churches that will that will forsake other things to obey and follow Him. Be encouraged in these trying times. Be encouraged in this small church. Be encouraged to serve God and know that yes, it looks tough, but God has commanded us not to be rough for its own sake. We're independent Baptists. There has to be a harder way. No, but God has commanded us that we should that we should undertake difficulties so that He can be glorified. in So. You can quench the Holy Spirit but of God and forsake God's assembling also from a church pew. You can do that. You can bring an attitude to church by because I have to be. And I I've been in churches at that posture. Um, we had to leave a church where there was a serious falling out between the pastor and I, and it was it was scary to go to church. The man was given to violence. And uh, I knew we had to leave. And I was in church because I had to be. it's no fun going to church like that. But Ignite. And those of us who have had to work Sundays, when I was in the service, Sergeant Cromwell, you're on charge of quarters detail. From 6:30 a.m. Sunday to 6:30 a.m. Monday, you will stand at the front desk. You will see who goes through, who comes and goes. You will sign in the visitors. You will go around to all corners of the barracks. You'll kick the rocks out of the doors where somebody's propped them open uh, against regulations. You'll report that. That was. I took an oath before God to do that, and God led me to the service. Don't join the service unless you know you'd be disobedient to God if you didn't. But I'll tell you, that was, I did not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. First thing I did when I came down on orders was I called the pastor and I told him I'm not going to be in this Sunday. The pastor was a veteran, he understood that too. But it's not the issue that the pastor had fond feelings for what I was doing, but that I was still accountable to the pastor. Even by was accountable to me and to took, Pastor so in Mongolia when he knew he was going to be absent. 1 Timothy 5.8 tells us this, But if any provide not for his own, and specifically for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. Your testimony is called into question if you don't provide for your family. I'm not saying that that work is an excuse to miss church in all cases. But I've been in several meetings, and in the time that my wife and I have been married... Where faithful men in church have said, "Please pray for the work for the route bid at the trucking company that I can get a that I can get a route that'll put me in church more often. Pray for me as I look for work. Pray for me as I as I work my schedule and my job that I can be in church more." Pastor Mitchell up in Maine had or up in Eau uh, Minnesota, had us up there to help his ministry during the weekdays when the men in his church, the farmers, their schedule was driven by the weather. When those farmers were out uh, during the weekdays when they couldn't come in to help the pastor, they were out harvesting their eight to thirteen thousand acres, sugar beets, wheat, corn, soy that they had that they had growing in the fall. And their schedule was dictated by the weather. God knew that. The author of the local church knew that. The pastor knew that, and so did these men. And I would offer that their faithfulness to their church really can't be called into question. Pastor Mitchell had an interesting solution to that. He got a job driving a truck for those men and plowing for those men. And he said, not only do I get a little extra money, and that's nice, but he told me I also get to go out and enjoy fellowship with the men in my church. I would contend they are not forsaking the assembling of themselves together. So God tells us, so God tells us not to forsake. So we have an idea what forsaking is. It's laying aside to serve Jesus. Now look at Colossians three seventeen. The word of God says, "Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him." Peter said, "We have forsaken all and followed Thee." Jesus responded in verse twenty nine, "Everyone that hath forsaken for My name's sake." Peter's question again was premised entirely on following Jesus and forsaking in obedience. To act for my name's sake, it means acting under Jesus' authority. Any man, and many of the women here I'm sure also who have worked a secular job know what it's like to serve under a good boss. Jesus is the best boss under whom you'll ever serve. I can tell you that firsthand, from both secular employment, turning my job over to the Lord, and now in his pulpit and in his ministry. It is a deliberate obedience that looks for ways to serve the Lord. Everything you do obediently is done in Jesus' name. Whether you're conscious of this promise, your mind calls this promise to to the front or not. Because you're acting obediently. If you're doing what God tells you to do because you know God told you to do it, you're acting in Jesus' name. It's not just about the send key at the end of a prayer before the food gets cold. Although we should pray in Jesus' name. And what is praying in Jesus' name? It's knowing that we're praying according to God's will. And how do we know what God's will is? It's all here. It's right here in the Bible. If we pray according to the will of God, we know we have those things, the petitions that we desire of Him. 1 John chapter 5, verses uh, 14 and 15. What we do obediently, forsaking them... Is faith placing something that we have under God's control? And we then become stewards of time, relationships, and assets. Here's a test for for a uh, hip pocket examination to begin the question of is what to begin the question of is what I'm doing according to God's will. Are you going to be thankful when you're done? <laughs> Years from now, we're going to look back at this and just laugh nervously until we change the subject. That's not necessarily God's will. That's certainly not repentance. The first ministry I had at age 26, when I I began to, when I was in the service and I found my feet under me and I began, I was in a position where I could find a church, I began steam cleaning carpets at a church and Christian school before the inspector shut them down. I guess the water seepage coming into the kindergarten classroom where they they ate their lunchables and the resultant mushrooms that grew out of the carpet was a little much for the inspector. Um, I, I do know that the assistant pastor had asked if they were edible. (laughs) <laughs> he, he beat me to it. And he did have to know Pastor enough. God bless him. had a chance to uh, present for him recently uh, just last year and uh, see him and relive some old memories. But Can you thank God for what you've done? When I did that work for the church, I got done with my duties on Fort Meade. I went to Odenton Baptist Church. I set up Friday night. Saturday, I started up the the steam cleaner. Sometimes I was there at 10 o'clock at night getting things done. Sunday night, after service, I waved my hand in the back of the 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 auditorium. Pastor, I need some men to stack chairs. Put chairs and desks back in the classrooms. And, you know, so everybody knew I was doing this. But more importantly, I could be thankful. As God led me one night in my devotions as if he was tapping me on the heart and said, Byron, when was the last time you thanked me that you got this done? What you do obediently is done in Jesus' name. And a test of this is will you be thankful when it's done? Yes, but what do we forsake? 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, please. we go. First, word, Here go. 1 John chapter 2, there it is, verses 15 to 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Love is defined in 1 John 5, verse 3. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doth the will of God abideth forever. To love is to obey. To love the world is to obey the the world system, to put world considerations, the considerations of this planet first. To hate, then, is not emotional feelings, but it is action, it is to disregard something. The house is the first thing that Jesus uh, that, uh, that that Jesus says here in verse 19. And it is separate from lands, which is mentioned later on. But everyone that hath forsaken houses, it is a shelter of display and provision. When I bought that house, I had the mortgage. I don't anymore. I was able to pay it off soon. And uh, that was another testimony that I have more flexibility now. Uh, I was able to, uh, God gave us, uh, God provided the means for us to, to pay off that mortgage. And only now And it is a a display of shelter and provision. It is synonymous with a man's scope of authority and influence, the ancient ruling houses in Europe, the house of. Prince Philip just died, as if you're into that kind of thing. But uh, the house of Windsor uh, and and so forth of, of England, it is so large that we take it for granted. It also appeals to the lust of the flesh. It says, look what I have. And it's a powerful lust. And it generates a powerful fear. When I studied in Europe 30 years ago, in 1990, there was an election in Austria, and I got an internship with the Austrian People's Party as part of my secular education when I pursued it. And uh, I remember going to a church over in Vienna, and uh, in German, it was, oh, you you don't want to to work with the Austrian People's Party. Why is that? They had ties to the old Catholic monarchy. The House of Habsburg fell in 1919 both treaties that ended the First and Second World War specifically banned a revival of that ruling house. But those people were still afraid of it 45 years after the end of the Second World War. They were still afraid of the House of Habsburg. It appeals to the lust of the flesh, both to desire and to fear. Look what I have in my life when I started. We swapped houses. I don't need a hundred houses. I'm not expecting a hundred house, 100 houses. But what is does the hundredfold promise we obtained God's will as we put our house under his authority. Lord, I'll buy the house. I remember praying when I bought the place. God laid this prayer on me. Lord, I'll buy the house. But you're going to have to maintain it, and you're going to have to make a platform for your service. Four bedrooms in that house. Judy and I took the master bathroom and bedroom suite. I made the smallest bedroom in my office. Fumble's got two rooms uh, all to herself. And that's important to a cat because she owns the whole house anyway. So that's how how I thought it was going to be. And God used it. God rewarded that step of faith by giving me a ministry involving that house. Family. The Bible says everyone that hath forsaken brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children. Going back to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 says some interesting things about the house and the home. Good families stand out at home in the community and in the church. It also appeals to the lust of the eyes. What would I have accomplished? Pat and Ann Cromwell and their boys, mainly, and and their family and church were known. They were recognized in the churches that we were in. The Bible, though, tells us something about the house in Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 36. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. There is love again. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Now, God does not command a destructive attitude towards your relatives in order to please them. We're capable of doing that all by ourselves. But the fact is, God does warn us that a man's foes shall be those of his own household. There's a lot of misunderstanding between here and Anchorage about what Byron is doing if the question comes up. And oftentimes, talking to my sister, I have to back up and define for her how what we're doing, uh, how, and, and what we're doing and what the church says about what we're doing you do not break the blood relationship to forsake your family, but rather you put that relationship under God's control through obedience. And it's not comfortable because of time and distance. At the time that both of my parents died, I was serving the Lord someplace. I was in Maine. I was in Indiana. And I got a call on the phone. Byron, if you want to talk to your dad, if you want to talk to mom, we'll hold the phone up to them because they're not going to live out the night. And then I called the next day. They've been in heaven for 45 minutes. Byron, praise the Lord. God bless him. God bless him. The Lord be glorified in that. Obedient kids honor their father and mother by exceeding them according to God's will. This is not jealousy or pride, but devotion. And the parents should teach that to their kids through instruction and example. It wasn't easy for my parents. There was a crooked minister that had cheated them out of a children's home property that they had built on land that they owned. And they had to go back and buy it back at auction at forfeiture sale, sail from the state of Alaska. We grew up in a home that wanted to serve the Lord, but got badly burned, and were very cautious. And Mom and Dad did the level best they could with what they had in Anchorage, which wasn't much. And God warned us in Anchorage for a reason. But it wasn't easy for Mom and Dad to find a good church all the time. But what they taught us was the importance of being a missionary in your own backyard. And I got started teaching five-day clubs at age 13. And Child Evangelism Fellowship waxed and waned, and and eventually, I saw that you know there was no way forward in this ministry. It looked like the missionary wasn't doing much. I couldn't get meetings to to teach at, and uh, they were all the way in Anchorage, and I was twenty five miles up the road. I finally put my Bible on the shelf and resigned in protest. This isn't where God wants me. And I would tell people I was thankful that I learned as a teenager that missions is not where God wanted me to be. After all, I was sixteen. Okay, there's certain certain stature that has to be observed and followed here, okay, I knew, because I knew, it. and, uh, oh, but mom and dad, would, I got up on the bus for a couple of weeks in summer in 1983, 5.30, I was on the bus at 6, 7.30, I was down in Anchorage, it took the people to mover a while to get up the road, and then uh, I'd get home around 5.30 after dad got home from working at the public health service, And uh, my father told my older brother one time, I got up before you did. I worked later than you did. I worked harder than you did, so stop complaining to me. He said that to my older brother. So I thought it would be funny to tell my dad, you know, this week I got up before you did and came back later than you did exactly once. And that was it. Um, Dad saw the humor in it, but I knew not to do it again. But parents, don't force the kids to choose close proximity to mom and dad versus serving the Lord. Don't force them to compromise for the sake of peace with parents or siblings or extended family. Don't start an argument with your brother-in-law about ecumenism and and the local church. I know you're impressed with this pastor where you're at in college, Byron, but don't don't get too carried away with that. And Just just tone it down a bit around the family, okay? You know God solved that problem? Proverbs 16, 16, When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. I'm at peace with my family. I hardly see them, okay? (laughs) And you laugh, but my family are all profess Christ and live and have shown a Christian testimony. Praise the Lord for that. We'll see them again at the rapture. One day, parents, the kids are going to have to do it without you. And don't let Satan cause you to doubt God's will for your kids for the image of a traditional family. What is the hundredfold promise that I've moved... 5,000 miles away from my relatives right now to serve the Lord. That, you know, I can have another hundred, another 500 relatives and if they're 500,000 miles away, maybe that's the way it should work. No, no, no. The hundredfold promise, God holds those I love, both in my family, in my church, and those among the unsaved for whom I pray. I have a church family also in Chesterton that I will meet again at the rapture and one in Ulaanbaatar, and one in Simria, and one in Mexico City, and one in Capway. I have the church family that I will meet again at the rapture along with blood relatives that I haven't seen for many years. That's a promise, Christian. Have faith that God will guide and direct your family, both the one you left and if God's blessed you, the one that you're raising now. Lands, and everyone that hath forsaken lands. Private property is in the Bible. Thou shalt not steal. Lands usually refers to real estate in the biblical context. If you hold land, your your wealth was stored maybe not in gold, but in your in your flocks and herds, and that was in coinage, money was in the medium of exchange, was a medium of exchange. <clears throat> and there's stories about and parables about men that buried their talents when they left to keep them safe. That was a common practice as they traveled. It conveys also the idea of investment and inheritance. This tangible asset will survive me and I get to decide what happens to it in my will. These lands also appeal to the pride of life. Look what I control. Will you forsake those lands? You know, I think the biggest land that we have to forsake is the undiscovered land. It's hard to give up future plans. But parents, you should have plans. My wife and I have a will, a life insurance policy, in case I get killed on the field and Judy has to come home. I'm providing for my wife. That's a testimony now. And uh, if if we have a will in case we both get killed, what's to happen to our assets? We have plans. You should have plans. Because every so often we think we're going to have to change uh, change our will as God has changed our plans. Think about that, Christian. You don't get to have the final word. Obedience to Christ will require us to forsake, but not to give up our very future. You should have a plan for your children to serve the Lord. You should have a plan to serve the Lord. You should have a plan uh, uh, for, for your assets and your things. Because the more detail your plan is the faster you will see the hand of God as he works to change things to fit his will as he works to show you where you need to make small adjustments and make shallow turns and in and in short steps to please the lord in the in the easy simple things to which he calls us to by which he calls us to serve him allowing god to change your plans as he guides you with his eye will show the grace of God, and will also increase your faith in God's will. This is not abandoning your future to some vague notion of, well, it must be God's will. Well, I came back from Mongolia and Cambodia, and I couldn't get a whole lot of traction with the fundraising. It it must be God's will just to go back to work at the cookie factory, while all the time God is showing me a need of, of, of service that He has. Follow that need and God will fill it and where God guides, He will provide. Where God leads, He will feed. And don't lose track of that. When I was over in Africa, I read Oliver B. Green's work on the second coming of Jesus Christ. It was written in 1970 and it's timeless because of his appeal to Scripture. In that book, Oliver B. Green makes this observation, speculation admittedly about the rapture, but I find it compelling. He says, if modern law and, uh, and uh, business still hold after the rapture, and I suspect they will, one way that the Antichrist will, um, will arrange an illusion of prosperity is to seize the assets of departed Christians. Since then, you know, I've really gotten an anti-Christian attitude about my possessions. He who dies with the most toys is still dead. But he was raptured with the most toys. He will be looted. They are going to get it all. I come back to the States and I hear missionaries griping about the price of ammunition like they're stocking up to stick around. I don't understand what drives that. My late father left me a small collection of firearms. I've been selling them. I I just don't need that many Model 86 Winchesters uh, to, to meet the Lord. And forget the vague notion of, well, one day I'll see Dad and he'll be waiting to inspect his collection. No, he won't. But Jesus will. He will be waiting. What have you done with your assets to please the Lord? Nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to leave money behind for God's work. The command is to give as the Lord has prospered him. God wants your service right now. Not just your money, but God wants you to find a plan to serve him right now. Because as those plans change, you can see and be blessed and be a testimony as God changes those plans. So, and whenever I have, if I don't use up, wear out, break, sell, or throw it away, Antichrist is going to get it. What's he going to find? What's he going to find in my home? Is he going to find the chainsaw in the garage where I cut the firewood in the back? Yes, I expect he will. Is he going to find my bookcase with my, uh, with my uh, commentaries on it and other sermon notes and preaching tools that I have in my office? I suspect he will. What am I going to leave him on the computer when nobody else is looking? What's he going to find? What about uh, that, that gun collection? You know, I've gotten to the point, if Antichrist wants my house, he's going to have to go to probate to get it because it's paid for if he wants my car, he, 2012 Kia Sorento, he deserves no less. If he wants some of my guns, he's already settled. He's going to have to pay those forward. If he wants uh, to see, uh, if he wants uh, anything else, he's going to have to go through and see a house like many others, like almost every other on the street. Except he's not going to find the tools of sin that we see in so many houses when we go visiting. He's not going to find a big screen TV. It's not there. He's going to find some trinkets and souvenirs my father brought back from his work as a construction foreman in the Alaska bush 50 years ago, 60 years ago. He's going to find things that I purchased for my wife. He's going to see the house and testimony of a man who cherished his wife, honored his parents, and loved his God. And I want him to find that. What will be the testimony of your possessions? You see, the Bible tells us, look back to me at First John chapter 2, verse 17 again. The Word of God says, And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. One day, Christian, I'm not going to have to worry about these things, and neither will you. If you're here and you've accepted salvation, this meeting is rapture practice, okay? Get used to it. We're going to have a long time together. And the Bible tells us that one day in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be called to God. And for seven years, I believe, is when God will spend before the Bema seat and we will be called to answer for our successes, for what we've accomplished on the mission field. I don't think it's going to be a chew-out session where God dredges up all the sin that he's promised he's removed from the east to the west. Where God's going to dredge up all the sin that he said, "I will." Their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. I don't think that's what it's going to be like. But I think we're going to see a lot of missed opportunities. I think we're going to see a lot of rewards that we may not even know we had coming. I think and the Bible tells us one day all these possessions will go away and so will the lust to have and keep them. But we have power as God gives power, as many of those as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. We can appeal to God's power in our life to live above this lust and to live that way right now. Would you do that? hundredfold promise of giving up my lands is to know that God holds my eternal future. And he, will, and he will give us faith to see His work in our lives as we make plans. Would you then ask God to help you live that way right now? The Bible tells us at the end of Matthew 19, verse 29, He shall inherit everlasting life. If you're here, be advised. And if you're here, Christian, remember, you are dead and your life is it with Christ in God. You do not earn an inheritance. It is given to you. You are born into an inheritance. If you're here and you're saved, you have been born again into this inheritance. Let's close at Romans chapter 8, please. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 18. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 18. The Word of God tells us, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. What's going to happen to my possessions? Will I have enough to live on? Will I be able to come off the field in an emergency without a burden to my wife or the churches and undermine the testimony of the churches that sent me? Uh, What's going to happen to my possessions while I'm gone? Who's going to look after the house? God's got that taken care of for eternity. And eternity includes right now. "...Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God." There's part of the hundredfold increase, is you are given assurance that you are saved. In chastening, in blessing, and everything in between, right here and right now, not just for eternity. "...and if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ." It's not about what inheritance we may get from our family as they pass, but or even the inheritance that we would leave for others if we come before the Lord, if we go on to be with God before He comes. But rather, we're going to get part of what God gave to Jesus. Think about that. Think about that when you examine your accounts and you, and you have your possessions. And you should rejoice in your possessions if God's given them to you. He's given them to you to serve Him. But you, you receive the spirit of adoption. The Bible says, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. If you're saved and you're suffering, you're suffering with Jesus. The Bible promises the Holy Spirit lives within us. And then in, Matthew, in John 14, verse 23, that God the Father and God the Son make their abode with us. If you're here and you're saved, the whole Godhead lives within you. You bring suffering on yourself if you're chastened. God knows you're chastened. It doesn't bring him joy. It doesn't bring you joy. No chastening for the moment is joyous, but it yieldeth the the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them that are exercised thereby. If you're suffering, you're suffering with Jesus. And therefore, we can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness because he has already added to us the the, the joint heirship with his son. Christian, do you, are you reminded of these promises? Do they seem new to you? Don't let the devil add his commentary to the word of God and think that you're greedy to want God's will and God's provision as he's promised it and on his terms. Lord, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? It's a legitimate question. And it's one God wants to answer to you so that you may know that he is working in your life through the eternal relationship you have with him if you were saved. If you're here and you've not received salvation, remember that you do not earn this inheritance. God gives it to you. And God wants you to have it. He wants you to have his hundredfold. Um, May we have an invitation, Pastor? Yes. Okay. Please stand to your seat, every head bowed, every eye closed. done in just a moment. Every head bowed, every eye closed, standing to your seat. I want you to, first of all, God wants us to know that we are his children. And if you're his children, then he wants you to know that he has has an inheritance waiting for you, and a hundredfold blessing now. And if you're here and you're not saved, God wants to give you the same inheritance that he has given to his son, Jesus. Uh, If Pastor, if you want to play the piano, we'll have a few moments uh, to come and to okay. come and pray, and then we'll close. A few moments to, to come to the altar and pray if you want. The young people, you got your whole life ahead of you. And I'm sure that you that, that you've heard the invitation before to come and serve the Lord. But God lays it out to us in specific terms, in small steps that we can take. And He wants you to know that and know, to know His service and His obedience and His blessing. Thank you again for this opportunity we have to come into your house. The chance that we have to hear and hear your word preached, and Lord, we do pray for our nation at this time, as you know that evil men seem to have taken control over it. But we thank you, Lord, that this is all in your hands, and that your hundredfold promise still exists even in these troubling times. We pray for the young people here that they would see the relationship with you not just wound up in rules and restrictions, but instead, Lord, and in a framework and a structure to support each one of us pursuing your will, as you've promised would bring us the most joy and pleasure. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.